MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, March 31st, 2022. Today, feds prepare a disclosure on a figure at the heart of a pro-Trump January 6th conspiracy theory. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hello, everyone. We have a very special edition of Daily Beans. It is very early in the morning on Wednesday, March 30th. As I record this, I'm going to be in court all day. So I am bringing you two very amazing interviews. First, I'm going to talk with Van Battam. And we're going to discuss QAnon in Australia. And we're going to talk to Richard Green and his new concept called 30-Minute Civics, which is just amazing. Uh, But first, I do have a story for you that broke late last night that I wanted to tell you about. And that is from, uh, let's see, Josh Gerstein and Kyle Cheney at Politico. And they say the Justice Department is compiling information to share with defendants about Ray Epps, an Arizona man who has been the focus of a January 6th conspiracy theory uh, pushed by former President Donald Trump and his allies in Congress. If you remember, Ray Epps is the one where Ted Cruz was like, look, he's a fed. People are saying fed, fed, fed. And uh, it turns out he just runs uh, like he has a ranch in Arizona where that he rents out for weddings like that's He doesn't work for the feds and never he never has. Assistant U.S. Attorney Karen Rockland said in court on Tuesday she intended to provide a disclosure about Epps, who is a former Oath Keeper, in response to requests by January 6 defendants accused of leading the breach of the police lines including Ryan Samsell, who briefly huddled with Epps before charging the barricades. Epps, who was seen on video on January 5th, urging Trump supporters to go into the Capitol, adding that I think that's supposed to say January 6th. But Epps, who was seen on video urging Trump supporters to go into the Capitol, adding they should be peaceful, became the focus of that conspiracy theory pushed by right wing media outlets and members of Congress and U.S. senators, by the way. Epps, they noted, was not arrested despite being toward the front of the riotous crowd. And although his face initially appeared on a list of unidentified suspects, it was removed months after the breach. That led to unsupported claims that Epps was a government informant, like a like a confidential informant. Uh, There's no evidence that he has any government ties, Gerstein writes, but the theories proliferated and were raised, like I said, by House and Senate Republicans during hearings featuring top Justice Department and FBI officials who adhered to strict policies not to confirm or deny the identity of informants. The speculation grew so wildly that the January 6th Select Committee called Epps to help douse the flames. And this says here in Politico, who adhered to strict policies not to confirm or deny the identity of informants. And I realize that makes it sound like this person was an informant, but they weren't. But when Ted Cruz was like, is Ray Epps an informant? They had to answer, I can't comment on that. Um, He's not, by the way. A spokesperson for the committee said Epps testified that he had never been an informant for the FBI, wasn't working for any law enforcement agency when he attended the protests at the Capitol, and Epps has not been charged still. However, defense attorneys for others accused of crimes on January 6th have demanded details on what Epps did that day and his connection, if any, to law enforcement. At a court hearing on Tuesday, Rockland, the prosecutors handling one of the Capitol riot conspiracy cases, said the government was preparing something aimed at satisfying those requests. What I can tell the court is that U.S. attorneys, uh, this is a quote, U.S. attorney's office has been working on a disclosure pertaining to Epps. And that's what Rockland said, adding she thought the information would be ready to send to defense lawyers in give or take another week or two. 
Rockland, who is based in Miami and is one of dozens of prosecutors from across the country pitching in on January 6th cases, added that the government's effort to gather relevant information did not mean the prosecution agreed that any informants were present at the January 6th events, fomenting rebellion, as defense lawyers have suggested. An attorney for Epps, John Blischak, declined to comment on the planned transmission of information to those fighting January 6th charges. However, the lawyer said Epps had been completely candid with the House panel. Mr. Epps provided a full disclosure to the House committee, he said. That's what he told Josh Gerstein and Kyle Cheney. The claims about Epps stem from videos taken, as I said, on January 5th, showing him urging allies to go into the Capitol. Trump himself amplified the claims. How about that one guy? Go, go, get in there, everybody, he said. Get in there, go, go. Nothing happens to him. What, what's with him? <laughs> That's what uh, Trump said. However, a Republican member of the House investigative panel says claims that Epps was an FBI instigator were nonsense. That's Rep. Adam Kinzinger. Ray Epps has cooperated and is nothing but a January 6th protest attendee in his own words. Sorry, crazies, it ain't true. That's Kinzinger. So we'll see what this disclosure is. There is a non-zero chance that the FBI could come forward and say, yeah, he was working with us. He was infiltrating the, you know, the Oath Keepers or whatever. Seriously doubt it. But, you know, hey, these times, anything is possible. So we'll just wait and see. Hey, everybody. Sorry for the interruption. It's AG. I had to sneak out of court right now. We're actually taking a quick break. But I had to tell you about some breaking news today that's huge. The Washington Post just dropped a story that the Department of Justice is investigating rally organizers. There were two subpoenas or multiple subpoenas sent out. Let's see here. In the past two months, a federal grand jury in D.C. has issued subpoena requests to some officials in Trump's orbit who assisted in planning, funding and executing the January 6th rally. The development shows the degree to which the Justice Department investigation, which already involves more defendants than any other prosecution in our history, has moved beyond the storming of the Capitol to examine events preceding the attack. And they're going after organizers, people higher up on the food chain than just the boots on the ground. This task is also complicated, they say, by the proximity of those two different types of activities, free speech and violence that occurred within hours of each other and less than a mile apart. So the rally and the attack on the Capitol. Spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office is declining to comment, and they haven't said who the subpoenas were issued to. But a lot of people have been saying, you know, come on, Garland, what are you doing? There's no evidence that you're investigating. If you were investigating, we would have heard by now because witnesses would be telling the press. People who were subpoenaed would be telling the press. And the counter argument to that was always, hey, look, they just haven't gotten to the loud, squeaky, recalcitrant witnesses yet. But now we have witnesses telling the press, or I think they're witnesses. They don't say where their source comes from here. So that and from Hugo Lowell at The Guardian, he has put his eyes on a phone call log record showing that Donald Trump made a phone call from the White House during that gap to Senator Mike Lee, who then passed the phone on to Tommy Tuberville. This is important. We knew about the gap, but this is important because this is documentary evidence that actual calls don't match the White House call log, and those calls have to be put in the call log. That is a violation of the Presidential Records Act, and it's strong evidence that that record was tampered with by whoever prepared it, and that is obstruction of justice. So, yee, big things going on today. I just wanted to sneak away for a second and tell you about it because, yay. Okay, good news. Anyway, back to the show. All right, we don't have to take a quick break right now because we're going to go straight into this amazing interview that I had with Van Batum, and we're going to talk about QAnon, in Australia. So everybody take a listen. All right, everybody. I'm joined today by author 
Guardian columnist and co-host of the podcast The Week on Wednesday. Please welcome Van Batam. Van, hello. 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 Thanks for having me on from beautiful freezing cold Victoria. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you because we got a lot of similar things going on with conspiracy theories in our respective countries. And um, you have a book out as of November 2021 called QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults. And I wanted to talk to you about that today, plus a couple of other things. But first, what prompted you to to write this book? Especially, I mean, that QAnon seems like an American sort of, uh, you know, apple pie type of a phenomenon. So what prompted you to, to write this book? Well, it was the fact it was an American type phenomenon, which I had picked up on my radar. I'm an online person. You can imagine I write for The Guardian, which in Australia is a completely online publication, and I'm you know constantly tweeting and the rest of it. And I had a very strange experience. Like I didn't start as a media person. I began in the theatre and was when The Guardian came out to Australia, they were sort of looking for new talent and they found me at a feminist stand-up comedy night, <laughs> uh, which is an interesting place to find a job. And suddenly I found myself in the crossfire of the trolling phenomenon and I had no preparedness for this whatsoever. And, I mean, I spent a couple of very confused years trying to work out just why I was receiving this sort of hate on this scale that I just couldn't imagine. And then towards the end of 2017 and the beginning of 2018, I saw a a definite change in the tone of some of the abuse that I was receiving that was almost apocalyptic and that in the context of, you know, the typical, you know, shut up, you fat four eyes kind of nonsense and and the misogyny that I was used to, there was this whole nothing can stop what is coming, um, you will be judged, you know, this weird sort of day of the rope kind of stuff. And I'd attracted a bit of negative comment from Nazis before and I in Australia was quite famously one of a group of people who was targeted by the Daily Stormer, that internet website of neo-Nazi repute, uh, for the request that if anybody saw me in the street I should be run down by a car because the judge wouldn't convict. There were a number of us who received sort of similar um, incitements to our deaths through that website. But I'd never seen anything quite like this and sort of made a note of it going, what is this? Like, what is this dark to light thing? And saw these references to this internet prophet called Q. And I got really fascinated with it. And then I saw that it had started to get registered in American journalism. And there's quite a famous piece by Adrian LaFrance that was in the Atlantic called The Prophecies of Q. Um, and numerous other pieces of reporting, some really good stuff that was coming out of NBC. And I was just like, what, this is this is really disturbing and how am I on a radar of these people? And, of course, the more I found out about it, the more I realised that QAnon was very present in Australia as well, which was why it was ending up on my timeline. It wasn't just a few insomniac Americans. And I uh, put out on my Facebook page just a request to my followers going, have any of you had contact with this? And I got 600 responses in a day from Australians who were saying, my brother, my cousin, my aunt, my mother-in-law, they've fallen into this cult. They're getting up at four o'clock in the morning and studying these message boards and getting these, you know, recommendations from this internet figure. And I was like, we really have a problem here. This is, this is bad. Yeah. I'm so glad that you did this project. You, first of all, you and I have a lot in common. 
I was a comedian for 10 years. And then I started hey. podcasting on, on the Mueller investigation, right? And as you and I both know, the thing that happened to kick off the Mueller investigation was when Alexander Downer was overhearing or discussing this stuff with uh, George Papadopoulos in a pub in London. And uh, and then the Australian intelligence community reached out to the U.S. and said, hey. And then so we started this whole investigation into Donald Trump and Russia. And I started noticing that same shift, too, of abusive. You know, it's not your run of the mill misogyny that, you know, that you and I had become used to. Yeah. It took on this really weird sort of rapture kind of cultish sort of weirdness. So I'm so glad that you that you took on this project. What sort of things did you did you find out when you were researching? Well, I mean, there are some interesting differences about QAnon in Australia and how it got in. So we have a different electoral system in Australia to the United States. We're bicameral, but we don't have an imperial president. We have... Uh, a different system, but the the big difference is that we have universal enfranchisement, like everybody in Australia votes, and that means that our political conversation has to speak to literally every single person in the electorate because everybody is 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 expected to vote, and that means that we don't really have much political space for radicalism and we don't have a political system that that sort of works on a turn out the vote sort of bedding down the base principle. So QAnon didn't didn't have the same sort of polarizing political effect in Australia. Where it got in was through the wellness community as I found out because when I started asking questions about have you had contact with this I was contacted by old friends, um, one of whom is a hypnotherapist, another who was in who practices traditional Chinese medicine and runs a practice, going, this is absolutely rife in the wellness community and it is it, it's happening in uh, channels that have always had a bit of anti-vax sentiment. And this is before things got really crazy with the pandemic, like this is early on, there was all, already that sort of small anti-vax community in Australia. But it was getting into yoga studios and this kind of extraordinary convergence of sort of apocalyptic, you know, extremist American, uh, you know, Americana with yoga mums. And this was where it was happening. And the kind of communities where that exists in the suburbs, a particular kind of demographic started to emerge that in the research I did for the book got sort of born out on an international level was that you had people who were not you know, the oppressed working class or the displaced precariat, there was definitely this really strong middle class, a sociologist referred to as like a lumpen bourgeoisie of people who had means and were maybe small business owners or white collar professionals who were, you know, looking for answers or looking for a different kind of community or an elevated state of awareness and sort of seeking that out through the wellness community who became very rich pickings for conspiratorial thinking. And then, of course, the pandemic came here. We were all locked down and it just exploded. Mm. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing with art. We people had been doing studies on the sort of folks that were involved in the attack on the Capitol in the United States on January 6th. And and most of them where you would think that these were maybe uh, jobless or houseless or, or poor people or disenfranchised people. Most of them are of 
good means and and have jobs and are I mean, doctors and police officers and lawyers and in relatively blue communities. But they're more afraid of sort of this this quote unquote takeover of the United States by uh, marginalized communities and, and minorities. And then we have, of course, the big lie. But since the Australian government is set up differently, you don't really have room for that kind of polarization. What is the equivalent of the big lie in Australia? Well, I mean, like I said, it's got it's got a bit of engine around the pandemic. So our governments here, I mean, Australians are, are very collectivist in the way that, you know, there's an individualist tradition in America. I wrote about this in an article where I talked about Australia is so lethal, like there are things that can kill you literally everywhere. There are deathly poisonous spiders in, in my house, you know, and that sort of, that sort of uh, you know, ongoing um, sort of existence precarity that exists here means that we collectivise very quickly. We learnt on this continent, and when I say we, I mean the, the Indigenous community that predates all of us by tens of thousands of years learned that you collectivise or die in this place. And it's even within that, like, I mean, specifically talking about the pandemic response, we do what we always did and we collectivised really quickly all levels of government went, right, this virus is here, we're going to shut the borders immediately, we are going to bed down, everybody's doing lockdown, we are not going to let our hospitals get overloaded, we've got pandemic restrictions, we will be wearing masks, we will be getting vaccinated. These are all the things we were doing. In fact, it was a national scandal that the Prime Minister didn't organise a supply of vaccines earlier because we were all dying to take them. And in that atmosphere, there has been like this contrarian community and it's I mean it's very small but it's quite disruptive and quite um, radicalized that has been pushing an anti-vax anti-lockdown anti-mandate position and it's totally cross-pollinated with QAnon it is it is extraordinary to see these demonstrations that took place against pandemic restrictions in, in Melbourne which is the nearest big city to me in particular where you had literally sort of radicalised Q-believing yoga mums rioting in the street and participating, like urinating on war memorials and in Sydney they were punching police horses and this kind of, you know, reaction to the lockdowns. But it's been kind of extraordinary. Like so we've had a um, copycat trucker protest here in our national capital uh, Canberra, not that I expect anyone, it's like the Bonn of the South and Bonn isn't even a capital anymore, which is, is saying much. So Canberra's a pretty sleepy place, just full of public servants, and it was besieged by around ten to 15,000 sort of trucker simpatico protesters like in Ottawa, lots of Q flags and that really sort of internet mobilised community. And they've caused a lot of trouble. There have been fights with police. Streets were shut down. Like all the similar stuff has been happening here. And yet Canberra is actually the most vaccinated city in the world. They have a vaccination rate of above 98%. And so it has been this really sort of interesting fault line where you have very solidly majoritarian position of Australians who are like, um, governments are imperfect, but we trust them. Uh, we will act collectively. If I'm in it, you're in it. You know, the rest, these very sort of, we will comply with all directions. That's what we want to do. And this fringe that is reacting to the pandemic in a different way. When I was researching the QAnon book, because I was just like, what is the appeal of this stuff? Like, why would you go 
wow, there there are one of the Australian QAnon mythologies is that there are 300,000 children trapped under the streets of Melbourne, which is a city of 5 million people, and they're being kept there and variously trucked out by the US military somehow um, and fed to rich people and milked for their adrenochrome. And this is like an article of faith in the QAnon community. And it's like, wow, you know, who is running logistics for those trapped 300,000 children? Like they should be running the pandemic response. You know, they're getting food in and out and they're running, you know, all this waste management and stuff. And one of the things I learned in the book is that part of the appeal of conspiracy thinking is to feel superior, mm-hmm. that you have the possession of secret and better knowledge that other people, ordinary people, don't have, and they're just sheep in your special and the rest of it. And you can really see that in these in these Ottawa-style protests that have broken out here and in the anti-lockdown movement because it's all basically one sort of you know, octopus of awful and cross-pollinating sort of movements of yuck. And certainly you can see that that need while the rest of us are, you know, being good and dutiful and conforming and doing what Australians do, which is, you know, meet a, a natural crisis with this sort of everybody's in it together kind of instant fortitude, that there is a need of a certain community to feel superior and that's who's going to these protests. Yeah, and and that tribalism, right? Of have been having been left out and left behind for so long, and now have having somewhere where you belong, and not only where you belong, but as you say, you feel superior to to the average everyday citizen. So that you just shared one of the conspiracy theories about the three hundred thousand children under the three hundred thousand children under the streets of Melbourne. Under the streets of Melbourne, I <laughs> that's um okay. Who is doing their catering? Yeah. That is amazing. And no one can see it. Well, that is really some coordination that's um, that's intense. Uh, yeah, you're right. They should be in charge of the <laughs> handling the pandemic because that's a hell of a feat. Yeah, they wouldn't have been late with the vaccine delivery. That wouldn't have happened. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you say that this sort of snuck in through the wellness community. Is that, do you think, because, you know, in your research, did you find, you know, it's sort of like an anti-pharmaceutical feeling and more like kind of that non-Western medicine, you know, don't put that in my body type of a situation? Is that sort of where where well, that found roots? Well, I mean, what's so funny, and this, and this is why it's been so odd for me to study it as an Australian, is we have universal health care here. Yeah. Like we have government health care and the, the threat of big pharma, like we have a pharmaceutical ben- benefits scheme where the government subsidises your medication. Like healthcare is not a driving force of economic collapse in this country at all. Like, and it's kind of... It's it's extraordinary for me to see Australian communities parroting the language of American grievance and complaint and the big pharma thing because that's really not an Australian issue. But two things. One, the wellness community stuff uh, does have this don't put in my body. They're calling themselves pure bloods here. I presume they're doing so in the United States as well. Have you heard that? Pure bloods? I mean, I'm sure I saw that on the Daily's Dormer one time, but we are where we are. There is that sort of lifestylist community that, um, you know, mistrusts the Western medicine, which is socialised and free here, which is bizarre. But in my research, I came across this really interesting concept known as fusion paranoia, which I talk about in the book, because this has sort of happened before that these sort of uh, alternative health communities, new age groups, 
find find similar beliefs in unalike movements like here it would be on the extreme right and the fact that they've decided to embrace this sort of anti-vax position as a means of arguing against government authority basically and you know, mounting an authoritarian attack on the nature of democracy, and this this paranoia about vaccination on one hand and a hatred of the government on the other has married, and we've seen this sort of weird hybridization of this paranoia. And one of the things that came up in the interviews I did around the book with a number of people who were like, "Yeah, my uncle is a hippie who moved to the north coast, and I I always." saw him as sort of being on the left or very liberal and, you know, very anti-war and anti-imperialism and then got into sort of an anti-water fluoridisation position and now he's a full-on QAnon person and waving Trump flags. And certainly that's been the experience in Australia is to see a lot of sort of former hippies waving the Trump flags. And they are, by the way, America, in our streets. They were outside our parliament building the other day. They particularly like the one of uh, Trump's head photoshopped onto the Rambo body has been getting a lot of play. And the American flag has been flown at some of the demonstrations here and is kind of amazing. You know, the yoga mum pro-Trump radical front is not something I ever thought I would live to see. Yeah, that's not how it goes over here as much. <laughs> I mean, we have we have other ways into other much larger communities than the wellness yoga mom <laughs> community, which is most of California and New York. And we we aren't waving Trump flags. Not necessarily putting myself in the yoga mom uh, group, but yeah, I have not all yoga moms. Yeah. Like hashtag not all yoga moms. I have practiced yoga, but yeah, and you're right. You have universal health care there, so it's it's just. But I can see sort of if you have to find an in how that would be orchestrated like you have fewer ins in Australia than you do in the United States based on how your government is set up based on the fact that you have universal health care etc so it's just absolutely fascinating the book is called QAnon and on which is a great title a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults it came out in November 2021. You can get it wherever books are sold. Can you also tell them where to follow you on social media, please? Well, I'm at Van Badham, which is how you spell my name, on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and on Instagram, although my Instagram is mostly my dog and my garden because you can imagine after 12 months of being undercover in the Australian QAnon community, I've had to spend a lot of time in my garden to sort of calm down. But I, I'm pretty easy to find. And, I mean, you can always recognise me by the trail of QAnon people people who are accusing me of being a, what am I this week? I'm definitely an agent of the Chinese Communist Party and I'm a some kind of globalist. Uh, I'm definitely part of the global cabal and I'm in on it and I'm a journalist, so I'm obviously, you know, an agent of the deep state. I mean, I get that a lot. And you think the earth is is round and so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's been really interesting. So one of the, uh, the fascinating discoveries is QAnon adapts to its different national communities. And in Australia, the lizard people are a a big part of QAnon, as they aren't in sort of other places. In Japan, they have various theories about the um, imperial family and their role in creating um, tsunamis and natural disasters. Like there's there's always a sort of local variation. But Australia, home of the blue tongue lizard, the frill neck lizard, and some of the world's most exotic reptilian species has definitely embraced the lizard people thing. Yeah, that's a that's a kind of a that's one we have too. So we have have that in common. But yeah, I like that. And you will know me by the trail of trolls. I think <laughs> you could put that out there. 
Van Batum, I appreciate your time today. Again, the book is called Q and On and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG for The Daily Beans. Today's show is brought to you by Helix Sleep. We all know how much I love sleep. I love sleep, 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 sleepy down into my belly. Your happiness and your mental health and your well-being and your physical feelings are all enhanced when we get enough sleep, right? And without the proper rest, it's difficult to focus. It's difficult to function. And you don't have any energy. And for years, I had a hard time sleeping. A lot of it had to do with PTSD, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was sleeping on a mattress made for somebody else. But then I found Helix and I took their online sleep quiz. It just takes a couple of minutes. It's at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. And they matched me to the mattress that's perfect for my body type and sleep preferences. And now I sleep like a baby. They have all kinds of mattresses, soft, medium, firm, body temperature regulating, spinal alignment mattresses, Helix Plus mattress for plus size sleepers. I was matched with the Helix Midnight because I'm a side sleeper and I like a medium firm mattress. So it's perfect. And thanks to Helix, I fall asleep fast. I stay asleep all night. I wake up refreshed and alert. As you know, Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. They were number one best overall mattress pick of 2020, according to GQ and Wired Magazine. Uh, They have a 10-year warranty. And you get to try it out for 100 sleeps with no risk. If you don't like it, they'll come pick it up and give you all your money back. They even have financing options available. So seriously, you have to check it out. Helix right now is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash dailybeans for up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Everybody, welcome back. We're going to jump right into our next interview with the amazing Richard Green to talk about 15-minute civics. It's so great. Take a listen. Everybody, welcome back. I'm honored to be joined today by attorney, political communication strategist, and civics educator, also author of the books WTF Are the Midterms and Words That Shook the World. Please welcome Richard Green. Richard, thank you for being with me today. Thank you, Allison, and thank you so much for your service to our country, both in the military and especially after your time in the military. You you rock. Thank you, as do you, because what you have done is created something called 15-Minute Civics to explain, and this is a, this is a get-out-the-vote initiative, but it's also an education initiative because there are so many people who don't really have their heads wrapped around the basics of civics in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about 15-minute civics and, and sort of why you created it and what that encompasses? Well, thank you. Listen, uh, Sylvia Earle, who is a marine biologist, says that you cannot care unless you know. And in my interactions with the people who will be part of the 120 million American citizens who will not otherwise be voting in the 2022 midterm elections, is that they really don't know. They don't know anything about how our government works, how their voice can be heard, and how their vote does, in fact, count. And so it's an incredibly important message. I was inspired to go down this path because when I was at USC Law School, I was awarded a a fellowship to the Constitutional Rights Foundation. And my job when I was just a kid was to travel to junior and senior high schools in Los Angeles and teach them civics and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and watching their eyes glaze over because they just didn't really, you know, they weren't attracted to it because it wasn't taught in a cool way. And I said, I'm going to figure out a super easy, super cool gamified way to have people understand 
civics. And so I literally came up with a game based on a magic number, right? And if you can get to this magic number in America, you can get whatever you want. So you want to get rid of all your student debt. You want climate action. You want equal pay for women. You want to ban assault right, weapons. You anything you want. Or if you want to build a wall, it could be on the other way, other side. There is a magic number in America. You know what that magic number is? Uh, 270. And why do you say that? That's the number of electoral votes needed to win a presidential election. Well, that's you. You're you're wrong, and you're totally right. Right? <laughs> so, yes, to elect a president, you need 270 electoral votes. And you know, you and I were talking that we just barely got to that 270 plus by um, uh, 42,900 votes in the 2020 election. Right. A total of 42,900 votes uh, won uh, Georgia, Arizona and Wisconsin for Joe Biden. That's it. It's, so even though even though we had seven million more popular votes, we right. only we only inched it out, eked it out by forty two thousand nine hundred. Right. Because the Electoral College is based on racism and it's stupid and it's anti-democratic. And if it wasn't in the Constitution, it would be unconstitutional. As a lawyer, I am very happy to say that. Right. There are ways around it. There's the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. But again, we need to elect a lot more Democrats in states and Democratic governors to sign that bill to be able to do an end run around the Electoral College. We can talk about that another time. Um, So the magic number in America is 279. However, the practical magic number in America is 270 because we will never get to 279. Mm. You know what those 279 are? Mm, What's that? So let's say, so what's the you, Allison, what would be the piece of legislation that if you had a magic wand, you go, boom, here it is. Now America is significantly better. What would be that that law? The voting rights legislation. Okay, perfect. Well, we HR, HR one, maybe. Right. Right. The For the People Act. Right. Awesome. Right. Awesome. Everybody says we want dark money out of politics. We want to end corruption. We want all of those things were in H.R. 1. And somehow the Democrats weren't able to message that in a way that was meaningful anyway. But every time, every two years, the founding fathers of the United States way back in the 1700s created the possibility for a revolution. And that revolution is called an election. Because in order to get to 279, all you have to do is elect 218 people that would vote for the Allison H.R. 1 bill, right? And it passes the House of Representatives. There is no filibuster in the House. And then how many do you need in the Senate? 60. Right. Well, that's total BS, (laughs) anti-democratic bullshit, right? It is. It is. And I think we're now understanding that it didn't used to be a problem because it was reserved for really special things to preserve the rights of the minority. But Mitch McConnell broke the filibuster. Mitch McConnell broke the Senate. Mitch McConnell has broken democracy. And, um, you know, we just need to out him for his uh, his his treasonous acts. So we're unlikely to get 60 Democrats to pass the Allison H.R. 1 Act. Okay, But there is a workaround to that. And what is that? And we saw that it almost happened when the Voting Rights Act and the John Lewis Act, you know, with H.R. 1 and John Lewis essentially came up 
And what is that workaround? That is that you only need 50 Democratic senators and a vice president to nuke the filibuster either for one bill or for a bunch of bills or completely. Right. So and and we currently have 48. Right. And we have a president who is waiting in the White House to sign anything that we're able to pass because of that. So you need 218 in the House. You really currently need um, 60 in the Senate. But if you got 50 plus the vice president, you could then go back to the a simple majority. So, and then you would need a president in the White House. So basically, so the math is 218 plus 51, which includes the vice president, plus one. So my message in my 15-minute civics courses, which I'm happy to do free of charge for anyone and everyone, and I just beta tested it a couple of weeks ago. I'll tell you about that. My message is we are just two votes away from virtually everything you want if you're a young person, virtually everything you want if you're a person of color, virtually everything you want if you're a progressive. We're on the frickin' two-yard line. Go Rams. Yay, Rams. I mean, I'm from L.A. We're on the two-yard line. Right? We can't give up now. And I know there's so much frustration amongst progressives who worked so hard in 2020 and then in Georgia, right? And they say, screw it. You know, politics sucks. The Democrats suck. They're not strong enough. They don't have the votes because of two Democratic, quote unquote, Democratic senators, mm -hmm. Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. So the point is, Manchin and Cinema are not up until 2024. But on November 8th, we have the opportunity to flip two of the 20 Republican Senate seats that are in play. All we need is 10%, get two real Democrats elected to the United States Senate who are committed to doing what needs to be done to get rid of the filibuster, to pass these incredibly important pieces of legislation while, and here's the important point, Allison, while we have a president in the White House to sign it and to sign them. This is an unbelievably rare window where we have where we can have the House, we can have the Senate and we have a president and we can get so much passed. But if Ron DeSantis or, God forbid, Donald Trump gets back in, we could have the 218 in the House and we could have 60 in the Senate, but we're not going to get anything done. So this is our golden window, our golden opportunity. And so the game of the midterms is to get two more people so that we can hit the real practical magic number of 270 to pass voting rights, to pass equal pay for women, to pass climate action, to pass Build Back Better, all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and and that's a, a, an incredible way to look at it. Just why would you kneel at the two yard line? Well put. And so thank you, Cleveland Browns fan. We probably have knelt at the two yard line. <laughs> so I think what's now becoming even more clear is we aren't just fighting for democracy here. This isn't just a Democrat versus Republican problem. This is a democracy versus autocracy election now. And I think the best thing we can do as citizens to help with democracy globally, including Putin's absolutely disgusting invasion of sovereign Ukraine is to preserve democracy here at home, because if democracy is toppled in the United States, the number one democratic superpower of the world 
we cannot support and defend democracy abroad any longer. And so it there's now this new and it's not just brand new. I mean, this has been kind of creeping up for a for a very long time, but it's just so blatantly obvious on the world stage at this juncture that that voting is not just for us anymore. It's for it's for democracies around the world. Yeah, you know, I just did a podcast earlier today where we were talking about that. And the truth is, there's an amazing, what Putin did and is doing is is unbelievable. But I, I believe there are awesome silver linings from this. It's pulling the world together in, in support of democracy because autocracy, a, a dear friend of mine, Leopoldo Lopez, is the opposition leader in Venezuela. And he's been trying to rally people around the world you know, to, to oppose autocracy. And the silver lining in the United States is that we're finally, I think, able to put the Republican Party under a microscope and show them as traitors. I mean, Mitt Romney himself, a Republican, said it's almost treasonous that what people are saying, including Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson, whatever, you know, that Vladimir Putin is so smart and he's brilliant and what a brilliant thing. It's like, really? Mm-hmm. So so the, the silver lining of this is we're getting to out the Republican Party as an anti-democratic party. And I truly believe that if some of the 120 million Americans who will not vote understood that this is an epic, historic moment to send a message to not only the world and Vladimir Putin, but to the Republican Party, that we need to stand up so tall for the principles of democracy and that we in the United States are leaders. We are the moral leaders of democracy. We kind of invented this thing. We got to we got to be what we say we were back in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that these extremely international sanctions, just multilateral, heavy, heavy handed sanctions are going to expose and, and cut off rubles coming into American politics. I remember when Blavatnik was able to give seven and a half million dollars to Rubio and Scott Walker and, and Mitch McConnell and and Putin and Deripaska wanted to help give four hundred million dollars to Mitch McConnell to build an aluminum plant in Kentucky to just let the Russians put a f- foothold in our economy like that. They're, it's all going to, I think, come out in the wash. And how do we, though, everyone is so very tired after suffering the pandemic and the the absolutely mismanaged handling of the pandemic by by Donald Trump and, you know, just waiting for justice and and not seeing it materialize as fast as we would would like. Everyone's very tired. Uh, we And again, we worked so hard in 2020 and we still weren't able to get what we wanted. And I understand the nuance, but I don't think the average American sees it. Right. They, they, they see the, their gas prices going up. They hear from the media, inflation, 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 even though it's corporate greed that's causing those prices to go higher. But, you know, like like I said, back when I did the Mueller investigation podcast, you can't put the Mueller report on a bumper sticker. It's it's such a complex thing. So how do we and this will be my last question, because we only have a couple minutes left. But how do we get very tired people excited to vote in, in a midterm election? Again, you can't be excited unless you know how your vote counts. And if unless you know the game, 
which is to get to 270, you're going to lose the game. You're going to get gamed. And so that's why, if we, again, we're on the two-yard line. I'm sure the Cleveland Browns and the Los Angeles Rams have had many times when it's the end of the fourth quarter or in overtime, and they're on the two-yard line, and they're bone-dead exhausted, right? we got to give it one more play. And the truth is, here's the good news. It's kind of like we have 120 million people, you know, uh, with with a quarterback, right? And all we have to do is get 10% of those 120 people to go and elect 10% to flip 10% of the Republican seats. And we have a touchdown. And the next two years will be glorious. So it's like, suck it up. I don't care if you're tired. I worked as hard as you did in 2020 and, and for Georgia. And we've got to do this. And for example, on gas prices, the messaging is it's like $5 plus for gas in LA. That's going to go up. But in the Build Back Better bill were provisions to incentivize and help people buy electric cars where the cost per relative gallon is a dollar or dollar twenty five. We have solutions. We Democrats have solutions. Republicans have nothing. And so I, I think that um, if you understood that we are just literally two votes away, we got to reelect the Democrats in the House. You got to reelect the Democrats that are up in the in the Senate, and we just need two more to replace Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, and virtually everything you want. As I mentioned before, climate action, voting rights, equal pay for women, gun, you know, banning assault weapons, background checks, all of that. You've got a president for the next two years with his pen in his hand who is going to sign that. And unless we win these midterms, we may never ever, Allison, get those pieces of legislation passed. Yeah, yeah, I, I concur. And and I think now that perhaps the message could be, you know, we're all behind the Ukrainian people and we see the immense bravery and courage in the face of absolute terror. And all we got to do is vote. Yeah, it's, it's not a really, really tough thing, given the contrast with the sacrifices that Zelensky and his people are making in Ukraine. And I want to remind, this is our chance for payback against Vladimir Putin. Because remember what he did to us in our democracy in 2016. Mm -hmm. We got to vote to be a strong democracy so that we can shut him and his ilk down across the world. I do need to acknowledge how difficult it is for some groups, especially marginalized groups, to vote and how the big lie that has spread and led to the attack on the Capitol has been the catalyst for passing voter suppression laws in in multiple states. And so I as I say, all we got to do is vote. I do want to make sure everyone knows that I recognize that it's not as easy for some people as others, especially, well, you know, folks like me. I just I'm in California. I'm a white woman. I just show up. I'm in and out in five seconds and I can get water in when I'm standing in line. And I have a month to vote. And now we have vote by mail where we all get pushed ballots here in California. So it, it's definitely easier for some than others. So I just want to make sure that I acknowledge that privilege. But, you know, the, right. the larger picture is we just we just have to vote. We all have to vote. So real quickly, the essence of this micro engagement strategy that I teach is for you to decide what is it that is most deeply important to you in your heart. So if it's voting rights or if it's you know climate action, whatever it is, pick that one issue and you go to the polls for that. 
right? You make it that that is your mission. And if you care deeply and passionately enough on that issue, that's what justifies you standing in the line for two or three or four or five or 10 hours or coming back the next day. There is no reason that anyone should not be able to vote if they try hard enough so that also we can elect governors and state legislators that can change those voter suppression laws to make it easier in the future. But again, you know, if there were free concert tickets or free something, you see people standing in line for a long time. How about our own freedom? How about our democracy? How about getting what it is that you want? That's, I would argue, equally important, if not more so. It is. It's just despicable that some people have to do that. I agree. That's what angers me. But getting that voting bill rights passed, we need those two seats. Again, to do we're, just two, we're on the two-yard line. Just two more people. And we're going to have a, an America that's going to make everybody so excited to be living in. Well, thank you, Richard, so much. Can you tell everyone where to find you and follow you on social media or if you have a website? So if people want to bring you into their, you know, we have so many listeners that have incredible platforms to come in and, and do this 15-minute civics. I would love to know about it. As I've told my celebrity friends and others, I, I, am, I am dedicated between now and, the, and 8 p.m. Hawaii time, you know, on November 8th of 2022. And I'm willing to do as much media, as much education. I love civics. I love teaching it. It is so much easier than people think. So the best way is simply to email me. And it's Richard at Richard at the name of my book, words that shook the world.com, words that shook the world.com. And hopefully my words have helped and we can shake our country and the world in the midterm elections. Thank you so much, Allison. Yes. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. All right. That's our show. Thank you so much, everybody. I love you. We will be back tomorrow with the regular format and the good news. And we'll be back Monday with Dana. I miss my Dana. Anyway, so excited. And please, until tomorrow, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. And vote blue over Q. I've been AG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.